Hello, I'm Rain Phoenix. You're listening and watching Launch Left Podcast, a space for fame creatives to launch the next wave of music rebels, an intentional space to highlight and empower all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Today's guest, Bess Cobb, will let her introduce herself, but she's an incredible writer and uh, artist, and we're happy to have her. Please don't forget to follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Rate and subscribe. Have a great day. Bye here to have a conversation with you and learn about you. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's clear is that um, that you, A, wrote a book. Yes. And B, you have a Jewish grandmother. Yes, both of those things are true. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I guess that's really the, that's it. <laughs> um, the, uh, I, I wrote a book about my grandmother told in her voice from beyond the grave. Um, and my grandmother helped raise me. Um, and uh, my mother went back to work when I was a few weeks old. She was one of the only women in her medical residency programs uh, at the time in the eighties. And there was no such thing as maternity leave. Um, I just had a baby. I have a seven month old son. And so I'm, seeing how very different it is um, now, but um, I'm also one of the only women in my field. I'm a late night writer. I, I write for Jimmy Kimmel Live. Um, that's my day job. But um, this book is the culmination. I'm, I'm holding it up for Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, this book is um, really does feel like my, my life's work and um, is the story of the woman who stepped in and raised me. Uh, in her image, and it's told as voicemails and dialogue and prose, um, all from her perspective, knowing she's dead. Um, and I've dedicated it to my son to bring him close to her, um, even though they'll never meet, of course. And uh, hopefully it brings some comfort and solace uh, and joy to people who are living in this surreal moment that we are in, um, in, in every way. How often do you miss your grandmother? And yeah, was it every day? And is that why you started to sort of make an amalgamation, it seems like, of all of these different things she taught you or spoke to you about or wrote to you? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, you know, how often I miss her. I, I miss her on sort of like this pilot light all the time. It's like this low burn that I think anyone who's, grieving or has lost a loved one understands that the missing never goes away. Um, it's the, and um, oftentimes the memories of a person that somebody loved who's no longer with us can bring great joy. And sometimes that memory can feel like a, a knife pressed to your throat. Like that can, that can really feel like, Oh God, I don't know. I don't know if I can like breathe through this because I miss them so much. Um, and that is, those complicated feelings of bringing back memories to feel close to her and laugh and, and remember the good times and bringing back memories to just sort of like deepen that feeling of loss both exist in the book. And so there are people who read it and say like, this book is so funny. I feel like I know your grandmother now. What a character, what a fabulous woman. And there are people who are like, Oh God, this is my grief journey and you've articulated it. And this is, this is, this must've been so painful for you to write. And, uh, both are true. I, I wrote it because I delivered her eulogy at her funeral. She and I were 
extremely close. I was, I was tasked with delivering the eulogy and I wrote the eulogy in her voice. Um, so I delivered it as her being like, it's a terrible thing to be dead. Look how upset you all are and I'm not here. Um, and everyone just started laughing. Um, and um, I, I looked at my relatives who were like laughing and crying and I was like, okay, I've captured her voice and bring her back my bring joy to people. That is so special and so, uh, I think, really important, especially in times of crisis, um, but in general to begin to talk about the, the very thin veil between grief and joy, you know, and how important, how, how they do coexist in, and, and how it's important to laugh when you're most sad, you know, to have joy of some sort so that you can have some relief from that intense grieving, you know? And so I, I always look to comedians or people who are, you know, trying to put more joy molecules in, in, the, in the room because I, I truly think that, that that helps when you're really scared or grieving or any number of the negative emotions we think, we think they're negative, but they're just part of life. They're very, they're very close together. And so I appreciate that you not only like, pr you've proven that through, through the book and through even that eulogy was probably what first really, when you saw that in real time with your own relatives, how magical that must, or at least like felt like you could do something to comfort them. Is that right? Totally. I mean, that's, that's very well put. I, I love joy molecules. I feel like that's a, that's, that's a, that's like, that a little bit feels like that's my, my that's my thing. It's my team. It's my trademark. Joy molecules. Well, that's, that's uh, for good reason. It's, uh, it also, it feels like my, my whole job on this planet um, that my day job is to like, is to, is to make people laugh at the end of the day. Um, and my defaults at home growing up as a little girl to physician parents who were in really serious situations all the time. My mom is retired now. She was a psychiatrist who dealt with, um, 9-11 first responders and post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was her, wow. she, she dealt with the most psychiatrically um, um, extreme cases. And my father was the director of an intensive care unit up in, in Harlem. And so he, I, I grew up in New York, this is, this is where we lived. And so he was seeing people die every day, multiple people die every day. And so my, my job as a, a little girl was to like be the comic relief. <laughs> um, it, but I had to really get to the heart, like my jokes had to land. It wasn't like, you know, bring good cheer and have a general upbeat attitude. I had to like, I had to time it well and it had to slay. Um, and uh, it was a tough crowd. <laughs> so, I, feel like, I feel like I wish I could like atomize joy molecules and just say it. That's, that's, that's what I do. And so, it, it, you know, people have, have asked me like, oh my God, what's it like to re release your debut book in a pandemic? Um, and have, you know, the tour canceled, the, everything canceled for the safety of humanity. Um, and I think the, like, something I was talking to my husband about today was like, this feels like a more special time to bring people joy from this book, um, than just a regular, like, oh, it's getting good buzz. And if you're at a bookstore, maybe the cover is attractive to you. Now it feels just more urgent and personal. And even if it's a, uh, on a smaller scale, it, it does feel like 
the people who are reading it and connecting with it all write these crazy reviews on Amazon. They're like, I read it in one sitting, I'm laughing and crying. And like, there's, there's something about how deeply it's connecting with people in this tragic moment that makes me realize like doing this thing that I've been doing since I was a kid for a lot of people in my own words now, not in Jimmy's words or like the voice of a man, but like as myself. And I don't know, that feels special. Two thoughts, two questions. Um, A, like, I think that it makes perfect sense that in this time and in general, we are turning to the perspective of a Jewish grandmother for humor. (laughs) So I guess, thank you very much. (laughs) And and also, how much of uh, your voice do you feel like you put into her perspective or coming from her perspective, right? In, in the writing of the book. And, bef- and let me just ask the second question uh, so I don't interrupt you because I'd much prefer to watch you and listen to you talk than myself. And that would be, um, that was going to be my question at the very beginning. As you said, I am one of the only in my field. I am, you know, I am a female writer for late night show. And I always wonder what that line is about, like, whether you prefer to be called a female writer and sort of stand for, like, you know, for your gender and, and for a very few amongst, you know, the minority. Um, or if you wish that you could just say writer and just be known as writer. Yeah, I, I guess I can, I'll answer in reverse order because I, I, that question is now like freshest and, and like is resonating with me um, right now. Like the, it's such a firm, I would, I would love for it to be normal to be a woman in late night and I would love to just be writer. And at the show, I am just writer. I'm not treated any differently, I think, um, than, uh, than my, my male colleagues. Um, we have- You make the same amount of money? Yeah, it's all writer's guild. Um, I hope, I hope, unless, I mean, I joked with one of my writing partners before, I would like, I would, I would say a quote that was like a quarter of, of what we earned, and I'd be like, you know, I'm not doing this for blah, 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 a year, and, and just to see what his face did. <laughs> the issue of gender equity in Hollywood and in comedy writing and, and all writing um, is one that I feel passionately about, I, I hope to be an advocate for. Um, I by no means am like an example of I'm I'm just I'm one of many. I don't speak for any other female writers um in my specific field or in my industry. I just know I can just speak from my own experience. And in my own experience, I found that if you do the work and um and work really hard and produce a good product, that the good will rise. Um that I would if like a, a woman is listening to this and wondering like, can I get into this? will there be barriers to entry because of my gender, um, uh, specifically gender, I would say only if you make them. The advice that my grandmother gave me that's in the book is what would a man do? Um, it's something she said a lot. Having that in my head, a woman who was raised in the Great Depression had no options. She was given a choice. She could be a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher. And those were the jobs for women. Um, maybe a bookkeeper, maybe. Um, but she saw me and saw my mother, who's a radical feminist, 
um, and lived on a kibbutz and, you know, super hippie. But she, she, the two women who came from her, she looked at and said, what would a man do? And do it like that. And that's, that's what I did. Um, I didn't let my gender be a role in my career path. And I think that an important thing to do once you find yourself in a male dominated field is not to pull up the ladder behind you to other women. Mm-hmm. And is to remember that like, you are now going to be an advocate for women and a foot in the door for women who feel like they don't have a buddy who's in the industry or, or a guy who they know from like their college comedy magazine or their college improv troupe. Like extricate yourself from being part of the problem. Totally. Totally. And I, one thing that I'm really glad about is that we've like recently hired another woman that there's my boss, the head writer of the show is a woman and she's an advocate for women in comedy. She's the reason I was hired. Um, I feel like women in male dominated industries need to remember how hard it was for them to get in, Mm -hmm. in remembering that bring others along for the ride. Cause it's just going to get better. The more, the, the more of us there are, the more representation of any kind there is. I'm just um, going to do this because I don't think this offers the applause thing. <laughs> the emoji that applause. That. So rep- uh, representation is super important of every kind. Your, your first question was the, where, how is my voice in the book? Um, in one sense, it's, it's quite literal. There are a lot of conversations with my grandma where I'm chiming in and sort of like being disagreed with and lectured by her. Uh, <laughs> I'm often like wrong in the book um, or, or made feel wrong. Um, and I feel like my voice really did take a backseat to hers in writing the bulk of the book that it would have been more daunting if I was tasked with write a book and write it in your voice, like write a memoir. I think I would be really self-conscious about that and like performative about it, but I was writing in character as my grandma and I think escaping into the character of her and just allowing myself to talk as her um, through the page is what allowed me to write the book and so I had to actually just silence my voice completely in order to write this Um, unless I was literally the character of Bess in the dialogue it was just being my grandma Bobby. Great I have a question off what you mentioned before that I that I'm uh, stuck on about what you share with your husband today about your book coming out in a time of crisis right now have you gained even more clarity or have you begun to really believe that that's a precisely why the book has come out at this mm-hmm. time that it actually is a tool to help create more joy molecules during this crisis that you know we don't necessarily know in hindsight we can go how weird that this thing came out Right. You know, and I and I equally see that a lot where you're like, wow, everything lines up that now I have a voice to share things that will bring joy. How interesting that it happened at a time that most needs it. Maybe that wasn't your plan. But do you feel that do you feel energized by that? Like, does it does it feel to you like that is exactly why now that you're here? Totally. I mean, having you say that, I'm like, I'm nodding my head. It's it's less unfortunate than other people around me are making it out to be um like the that I've had friends be like oh my god how like I feel so sorry for you that this is happening in this minute and it's it's sort of like and I'm nodding along and being like yeah you know what was me and like I could make as many like self-deprecating you know like this is the real crisis facing America but I think what you said is absolutely true and in many ways 
is a sort of alignment rather than a misalignment. Instead of it being ill-timed, I feel like this is a prescription for now. Um, and there's a line in the book that my grandma used to say to me all the time. And it was something that her Zader, her grandfather told her. Um, and it's, it's throughout the book. It happened, it like bookends a few chapters. It's in the, it's in the epilogue and it's an expression, an old Yiddish expression. And it translates to when the earth is cracking behind your feet, you put one foot in front of the other and keep walking. She would say that all the time. She would say that for no reason. We'd be at Bloomingdale's and I'd be like, oh my God, they don't have a size eight in this. And she'd be like, when the earth is cracking behind your feet, you put one foot in front of the other and keep walking. It's like in the shoes. Oh, she literally, she said that in a shoe section. I mean, you are, you quite literally have a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, oddly, it is even a better time than ever to have, like, content that people need to stop. Yeah, I also actually feel that specifically, I mean, I'm a big advocate for talking more about loss and death and grieving in our culture because it's something we just don't culturally do here. Uh, like, you know, there are others that do it a bit more and they have a lot more joy in their life because they're not so scared of death. So to me, the fact that you've done something that, you know, does speak about our collective fears about loss and grief and all these things we're going through, but through a lens that is joy creating through comedy. Um, I just, my hat's off to you and, and appreciation. And I also think at this time of crisis when, you know, that's, we're faced with that constantly, the news is talking about numbers, sick, dying, all of the, you know, that, that the more that we can have constructive conversation and support each other uh, during this grieving process, it's, it's real for everyone. Like we've all lost somebody. We're all going to lose somebody in some capacity, whether it's, you know, uh, from a crisis or not, but being and able to we're all going to die. Exactly. And we're all going <laughs> to die. So yeah. talk about it constructively and, and in a way that's funny too, like bringing joy, like you said, the funeral of your grandma, like, wow, to see your relatives laughing and crying. That's just so profound. So I just wanted to thank you for, for being an, in a way an advocate for talking about these very big subjects through, through your art, you know, using your art to talk about really important things for everyone. I'm 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 one voice doing it. There are there are many there are many people in many fields and many creative fields um, trying to generate that and, and like trying trying to give voice to that as well. Um, and I think it's risky. And I think what you mentioned about like our cultural understanding of death and like this sort of American idea where you know you ask somebody in this country how are you the knee jerk regurgitated responses good how are you or fine how are you great and there's like zero introspection and there's if anybody said to an american person how are you and they responded not good um it would be it would like derail yeah <laughs> like my yeah. friends in france are and other countries are are like are are just so are just so much more grounded in reality because they don't have this cheerfulness that has to be so frontward facing um, and in talking about death, writing about death, painting about death. Um, I think it makes that, it, that, that irony I think is, is really true that it makes life and it makes joy more meaningful. Um, yeah. The book ends with, well, spoil, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. 
So, well, the book begins with her funeral. It begins, the opening line of the book is, it's a terrible thing to be dead. Um, all of the dirt and there's no one to talk to. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and I it, can't wait to read it. <laughs> it um, great, great. But it also ends with her telling me that I'm going to die one day. Um, that, and that's in the last page. It's like, it's me asking her, what do you want from me? It's, I want for you to live and for you to die and scatter your story into the wind, the myths and the legends and the truth and the heart. Did she and really say that? She, she had a, she had a funny relationship. To, she didn't, she didn't really say that. That's the character of her. Her relationship to death was, and I think in the, the elderly people that I've, that I love and have spoken to about this, it's extreme denial. Um, and it's part of maybe this Jewish matriarch idea of like, oh, I'm gonna live to a hundred. So like, I'll live to 150. You know so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say. And how old was she when she passed? She was 90. Um, Pretty fucking close, grandma. Very fucking close, but too young still like somehow you know it's like a I think the fact that I was um the fact that like I hadn't had a kid yet and there was so much that there was so much that she wanted to do Mm. um but ultimately it was the right amount of time and I think something that I grappled with in writing this it's like well you're writing with the death of a nine-year-old woman this is not a tragedy it's not it's very it's a life well it's a life well lived a long life well lived but the length of her life the number of years accounts for the enormity of the loss like that that is um there was a line that Stephen Colbert said when his mother died at I think 101 she was over 100 and she he he was so beautiful it was like almost Buddhist and I think about it all the time it was like it is just it the that her age indicates the size of the room whose door is now shut I remember getting the chills when I heard that I think that can be incredibly comforting and great, especially for a child. Honestly, I know, I mean, we lied to our children about freaking Santa Claus and like all of these other like silly things. And yet, you know, we give, let them be faced with this idea of mortality from the very people that give, gave them life and they depend on fully. I mean, my mom growing up always said, I'm never going to die. Right, right. I'm not dying. Right. And it was a huge comfort. And I do it with right. my children. And now they're of the age that they love to joke with me about it. But I know that it got them through a time that maybe the the question or the idea of losing that that was too difficult to bear. I also just wanted to ask you, um, how much shit did you get from grandma for not having a child, for like not being married and with children by the time she was 90? Oh my God. So that is, that is like the other arc of this book. So the, all of the dialogue is the relationship with my boyfriend who I moved to San Francisco for, who is now my husband and the father of my child. Um, the, the, there was this arc where, and I think probably Jewish listeners, and you will appreciate this. It was sort of like, we started dating and it's, when are you getting engaged? When are you getting engaged? And we got engaged and it was, all right, wedding, 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 wedding. And then it was like, when are you having kids? When are you having kids? <laughs> and it was a broken record and it was, it was, but it was like her drumbeat and she fully, fully meant it. And um, 
I think, you know, she would be so derailed by me saying things like, well, my career is really starting to take off and I have to move to LA now and I have to, you know, I'm, I'm doing this and I have to have this full-time job and I, kids don't really fit into the picture right now. And this, and, and she would just, there would just be silence on the other end of the phone when I would say this. <laughs> she ever tell you to do it like a man would do it? I guess so. I mean, do it like a man would do it, meaning that someone, oh, in her day, someone else would stay home and, and it would be their problem. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Did you, do you she, have yeah. siblings? It doesn't sound like it, but I'm still going to ask it. And did, was there a grandfather? Question mark? I do have siblings. I'm the oldest. Um, and, um, <laughs> Solidarity. <laughs> yeah. I do have siblings. Um, I have a little brother and he asked me the, the he's in the acknowledgments and I wanted to dedicate the book to him he's the person that I'm closest to aside from my husband and child um I say uh, I, I won't even say his name but I said to you um uh there's nothing I wouldn't do for you including leave you out of this book entirely <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest favor you ever did because yeah. he was like he has to deal with this sister who's like a comedian and on twitter and like mm. writing and he's like just don't write about me just don't i'm not your material um and i respect him and i he's not it's his story to tell like i do have a grandfather and he their love story is also in the book i have a grandfather who's an amazing character he's 91 he's still a professor at columbia um he's sharp as a tack um, and revolutionized the prefabricated building business in New York and um, went to Russia a lot during the Cold War um, on diplomatic missions to get the technology. It's a crazy story. Are we going to hear about that next? There's a little bit of it in the book. Maybe the next one will have more of it. If you don't mind me asking, what is your heritage? Is it Russian, Hungarian, yes. Russian? Yes. Belarusian. Um, my people are from Shtetl and Belarus, outside of Pinsk. And that actually... Well, us too. We're Minsk, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are uh, you... Uh, what was the um, level of, of uh, Jew in the, in the growing up? Was, was it Manischewitz Bialy Jew? Or were there bar mitzvahs? Was it a bat mitzvah? What did we, what did we do? My, my parents are atheists, um, at, were culturally Jewish. I, I got religious when I was 10. Um, I got like very religious, which is weird. Um, cause my parents sent me to nursery school at a JCC in like a synagogue basement on 84th street. Um, and that like got into my head <laughs> and they were like, Oh, you know, it was, it was two, blo- it was two doors from our our apartment and so they like chose the and so they my parents who are absolute atheists had this child being like it's shabbat and they were like what <laughs> and so i i bought this with myself at this like radical reconstructionist temple in the woods in westchester <laughs> um and like led the service and did this pro-palestinian speech about like how like the swallow the closing of the Red Sea was like a slaughter and like the Egyptian army didn't see justice. And my relatives were just thinking, like, what the fuck is going on? Good for you. I'd like for you to revive that speech and do an op-ed. It was a nightmare for my entire family. <laughs> um, but um uh, this poor like rabbi for hire was like, what is happening? <laughs> um, 
but I, I stand by it. Um, and yeah, so that was the level of Judaism. It was sort of like, as, as it applies to you and your life, but not necessarily like a regimented organized religion way. Cool. We want to ask you our three questions for sure, which we, which we're kind of morphing and changing um, for our launch left at home uh, segments that we're doing. The easy one is just like, how much does music influence your work? Like when you're writing, do you listen to music? Are you a fan of music? Were you a fan? Did it find you young? Is that what, you know, inspired you to art? Tell us about your relationship with music. Yeah. My husband is a musician and music is a big part of our world and our, our life. Um, and I was raised by parents who always had a record player on. Um, I was, I grew up in sort of this with the sounds of like the band, basically everyone in the last waltz was the like soundtrack of my house. Uh, and then like old in the way and grateful dead and, um, like traffic cream, uh, Eric Clapton, um, and, uh, like Allman brothers. This was, this was how I was raised just like every other Jew on the Upper West Side. Um, but the, um, that was my soundtrack. And then as I grew up, I turned to those same albums. I turned to like Mudslide Slim. James Taylor is a, is like a big part of my life still. Yeah. Yeah. I even like saw him at the Hollywood Bowl with my cousin and we were like, yeah. <laughs> So good. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely just because I was raised by the sort of seventies classic rock that that's my comfort zone. And when I'm writing, I definitely turn to like Joni Mitchell and the bards of that era to like, to be my inspiration. Martin that's my main Carol King. Yes. Tapestry. The whole so thing. Yeah. Someone started on Carol King. She is like, that's her fave. I think. What activates you into a level of activism and how does that pertain to your artistry? Yeah, no, that, no, I, I, I get what that is. And it's a super complicated question, but it's also one that I think about all the time because I am a political person. I was raised by political people. My first job when I was 13 I interned for a congresswoman in her campaign office so I did like phone calls being like hi did you know congresswoman Nita Lowy fights for reproductive choice <laughs> I was like what and so like I've always been like women's issues and I guess quasi-socialistic redistributive justice has always been a part of what I've been about my grandmother's father was a union organizer in Union Square. It's why it's called that. Um, he would literally stand on a milk crate and organize for workers' rights. That's, those are my people. That's where I come from. Um, and so something that she would say to me is, you know, my father would kill you if you weren't a Democrat. Um, and I'm like, don't worry. I'm like, I, I protested Bush in, when I was in high school. Like I, <laughs> I, you know, the, um, the idea that political protest and fighting for the left and fighting for fighting for what's right is is part of my DNA. And um, it's a message that certainly carries out through this book. My grandmother marched on Washington with Martin Luther King. That's in the book. My mom protested the arrest of the Chicago Seven at the DNC. And that's that's in the book. Our, our activism as a family is what holds us together. The moment that my grandma gave up um, was when Trump was elected. 
um, the conversation on election day is in the book. And it was the only time that she wasn't able to reassure me with her Zader's expression. I had to say it to her. And then she, and she was like, okay, that's how it, that's how it informs this book, my life and the art that I try to put into the world. We also always wonder if there's anything maybe new that you're listening to that maybe nobody else, not like Rain or I haven't heard of. Like, is there a band like through your, like, what's the name of your, do you like your husband's band? Oh yeah. So my husband is a music, uh, he has a music show called Switched on Pop. Um, oh yeah. That's- oh yeah. That's, my husband is the host of that. And um, he's songwriter Charlie Harding. Oh, I guess, oh, listen to it. Check it out. So we see shows all the time. Oh, my favorite venue is the Hollywood Bowl. There's nowhere, uh, there's nowhere on earth like it. I, every show I've seen, there's, I've not seen a bad show at the Hollywood Bowl. Major Laser to like St. Vincent's DJ set to like Beck was amazing there, but also everything I see there is amazing. Gershwin, all of it. Um, I guess smaller venues, I really like the Hi-Hat and I've seen some good shows there. Um, a band that I love right now is called Overcoats. There are these two women. They're awesome. I saw them at, um, I think the Roxy uh, a few years ago and they ended up coming to our house to be on my husband's show recently. And I, I like, I, it was the kind of thing where like, I, I meet a lot of celebrities for work like every day. Um, but I was so, I was like, I was so weird and starstruck with them. I was like, hello. I like forgot what to do with my hands because <laughs> I just, I love their music so much. Awesome. Great tip. Thank so, you. Thank you for letting me talk about my book and, and talk and asking such smart questions and engaging on such a real level. This is can, so can great. Can we be friends maybe? Like a texting friend, I don't know who <laughs> knows, but like it would be nice. All right. Okay, bye. Thank you. Do you think I'm strange? I don't blame you. I'm still learning what to do. Hello, we're back. And now on for the launched artist, Victoria Reed, who is a recent transplant to Mexico City from New York City. She made a record at home. We're going to hear all about it here. Please welcome launched artist, Victoria Reed. Hey, Victoria, it's so nice to meet you here on Zoom at Launch Left at Home. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to connect with you. I wanted to hear a little bit more about your song, Same Way. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you recorded it and, and what was the process for you? Yeah, so that song, well, basically the, the entire album, um, everything but one song we, had, we recorded at home here in our little home studio that we set up um, in our apartment in Mexico City, um, which was a pretty, pretty, uh, how, would I, how would I put it? it? It was a novel experience and it was very different from my first record, which was in big fancy studios where there's like a lot more pressure and a lot more gear and a lot more, uh, I don't know, maybe higher production value going on. And yet, um, yeah, there was something about recording at home for this album that was really supportive to just like being in my full creative power, I would say. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have, you know, my husband is a musician also, he's a pianist, so he's all over the record. And then we flew in um, a great producer from New York, someone that I had met from back when we lived in New York. We just moved about a year ago here to Mexico. 
uh, Ochernava. And he came here for two different, two different stints, about a couple weeks at a time. And yeah, so that was actually the first song that we recorded. Um, and it, it was actually, the, the entire process for recording this album was, was again, it was so relaxed, like just the energy of doing it at home was, was such, a, such a nice vibe. But that one, for some reason, was actually more difficult. Like that one just, maybe because it was the first one and there's always a lot of pressure, you know, in that first, that yeah. first track. Um, and just trying to figure out like, all right, what, what is it that we're, what is it that we're doing here? What is this record going to be? What's it going to sound like? You kind of feel like you're setting a tone for it. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that one we actually, like it took some massaging and even like some stepping away from and then revisiting later. But it, even though it was kind of the most the most uh, challenging one, it really ended up being one of our one of our favorites on the whole record. And the song is about I wrote it um, inspired by something that really a lot of the record was inspired by, which was kind of diving into this point in I don't know if you know anything about the lunar nodes. So they're like the point in our chart that sort of represents where we're headed so our north node is the sign that we're kind of meant to like embody and embrace in order to feel fully fulfilled in in our life this lifetime and then the south node is kind of like our natural gifts our comfort zone but also what we're meant to be really conscious about kind of releasing any of the lower quality expressions of and so this album and this song in particular was really inspired by me diving into this point in my chart and I became totally obsessed with it. Um, for me, those signs are, I'm becoming the sign of Aquarius and I'm meant to move away from the sign of Leo, which is an interesting challenge because I'm a Leo sun with a Leo rising. I have a lot of that Leo energy. Um, but I've everything that I've learned about it all resonated with me so deeply that it really kind of informed um, a lot of how I was processing things around the time of, of making this record and writing these songs and also just the, this, the, whole, the whole process of, of cre creating everything. Because really what that kind of access is about with those two signs is there's, you have the Leo archetype that's like the performer that lives to be loved and adored, you know, like it's very praise and sort of um, adoration driven. Whereas Aquarius, on the other hand, is just sort of like creativity for creativity's sake. It's a lot more detached. It's a lot more just like let your freak flag fly. Don't care if anyone approves or if it's, you know, um, if, if you're liked or loved for doing what you're doing. So that song is really about kind of grappling with what that means for me as an artist and someone who, you know, when you're pursuing a, a path in music, part of the job is just like being seen and putting yourself up in a spotlight. Um, and so just kind of like that song is about trying to navigate that, that balance and um, the balance between like being seen and maybe the the, in small doses or in the right doses, how that can be really supportive to someone like me who's on this kind of journey, um, and also the ways it, it, in which it can be just totally problematic. Yeah, awesome! Wow, uh, I, I I'm curious how music found you. Uh, what when when you first discovered what why music mattered to you? Oh man, 
from a very young age, you know, my, um, I, I grew up around it. My, my dad is a musician. Uh, he played for Bob Seger, saxophone with Bob Seger for since the seventies. So, you know, I kind of grew up sitting on the side of the stage at arenas for these crazy, you know, rock, rock and roll shows that as a child, you know, that, that whole energy is just completely exhilarating. So it's hard to, um, it's hard to like imagine that that wasn't, that didn't have a big, (laughs) a big role in it for me. But, you know, I can remember being five or six years old and being moved to the point of tears by like a gin blossom song, for example, like it's playing on the radio and I'm just crying and I don't even know why, but it's just for no particular reason. It just feels so beautiful and the sun is setting in just the right way. So I, it's always been something that, um, that, that I've just connected to on a really deep level. And growing up, my parents would always talk about, um, like the magic of Bob Seger's songwriting and how important it was. And they never really pushed it on my sister and I at, at all. And yet we definitely a- absorbed it because we started writing songs from a very young age. And by the time I was in middle school, I was writing songs just to process my emotions. You know, like it was, it was really, it became a pretty vital function of my being at a very young age. That's so, I love hearing that because I do think um, even if it, even if that's all that it is, I feel like every kid should be exposed enough to songwriting to mm-hmm. process emotions because it is what is such a wonderful way to get out what you're not even sure you're going through sometimes. You know, it's like subconscious, exactly. your subconscious comes out in music. And, and so I, I, I think that's so wonderful. I'm glad. Yeah. How, how privileged and amazing that you had that opportunity and that support to do that, you know, at that age. That's great. Thank you again a million times for being on Launch Left. And we're so happy to launch your song. Thank we'll be, you. We'll hey, so watchers and listeners, you're watching and listening to Launch Left Podcast. This is Victoria Reed with her song, Same Way. Strange, I don't blame you. I'm still learning what to do. I'm still learning what to do. You learned that the whole world wasn't made for you, so it could carry through all that you wanted to. Do you think of me in the same way? I think of you every day. I think of you every day. Be 
Launch Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. 